Welcome to Murder Minute. On today's episode, Belle Gunness. But first, your true crime headlines. The murder of a young woman in Colorado that went unsolved for almost 45 years has been solved. On Wednesday, the Grand Junction Police Department said that DNA technology confirmed the identity of the primary suspect in the death of 19-year-old Deborah Tomlinson in December of 1975. Tomlinson was found dead in an apartment in Grand Junction, 243 miles west of Denver. Investigators determined that she was sexually assaulted and strangled. But the initial inquiry exhausted all leads and tips, police said. The case was given a fresh look in 2019 by detectives who sought assistance from Parabon Nanolabs, a DNA technology firm near Washington, D.C. Parabon analyzed genetic information gathered at the crime scene, which presented several leads for investigators, who then used traditional police work to link the evidence to a suspect. The Colorado Bureau of Investigations has now confirmed that the DNA profile identified Jimmy Dean Duncan, who was 26 years old at the time of Tomlinson's murder. Duncan died in 1987, but investigators confirmed his identity by testing a mouth swab from one of his relatives against DNA found at the crime scene. Grand Junction Chief of Police Doug Shoemaker said in a statement, quote, Solving these types of cases is very important to our detectives and our agency. While not every case is solved, we are proud of the hard work put forth by those who helped provide answers to the victim's family and our community in as many cases as possible. The parents of a one-month-old who died in August were arrested Wednesday by Vermont State Police. Leo Cushing died August 1st inside the home he shared with his parents, 28-year-old Stephanie Giro and 36-year-old Matthew Cushing. State police said that an autopsy concluded that the cause of death was a subdural hemorrhage to the brain and indicated a homicide. The investigation determined that Giro caused injuries to her son prior to his death and that Leo's father was aware that Gira was prohibited from being alone with the infant. He allowed her to be alone with their son while he was taking a shower. Gira faces charges of first-degree aggravated domestic assault and cruelty to a child with death resulting. Cushing faces a charge of cruelty to a child with death resulting and was processed and released on a citation to appear in court December 22nd. Giro was ordered jailed on $25,000 bail, pending her arraignment. A St. Paul, Minneapolis man has been convicted in the 1991 homicide of a woman after authorities reopened the case two years ago and found DNA evidence on a bloody washcloth left at the scene. 58-year-old Donald Jenkins Jr was convicted Wednesday in the stabbing death of 20-year-old Belinda Thompson. Thompson was stabbed seven times in the front and four times in the back. Hennepin County prosecutors say Jenkins was interviewed in 1992 and in 2010, but didn't admit to killing Thompson until 2018, when he blurted out, quote, My DNA is there. 
I did it. Jenkins told investigators that he stabbed Thompson in an apartment. Testing on the evidence showed that his DNA could not be excluded from the DNA mixture on the washcloth, but over 99% of the world's population could be excluded. Jenkins waived his right to a jury trial and agreed to a court trial based on stipulated facts and evidence. He'll be sentenced on December 14th on one count of intentional second-degree murder. A girl in Ohio has died, shot by a gun discharged in a neighbor's apartment. On Wednesday night, officers arrived at an apartment in Reynoldsburg and found 12-year-old Lydia Geed suffering from a gunshot wound to her neck. She was rushed to Mount Carmel East Hospital, where she later died. 42-year-old Eric Carpenter was cleaning a rifle in a neighboring apartment when it went off. The bullet went through the wall and struck the girl. Carpenter has been charged with reckless homicide. Those are your true crime headlines. Up next, Hell's Bell. But first, a quick break. These are challenging times, and in difficult times, it can be difficult to cope. So if there's something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, and you've been thinking about talking to someone, it's time to get BetterHelp. BetterHelp is not a crisis line, and it's not self-help. BetterHelp is professional counseling, done securely online. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist so that you can start communicating in under 48 hours. They have a broad range of expertise available, and the service is available for clients worldwide. Just log in to your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so that you don't ever have to sit in a waiting room. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change your counselor if you need to. Plus, it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Just visit their website and read the testimonials posted daily. Like this one, written by a BetterHelp user, after counseling for one month with Dr. Robert Nelson. Dr. Nelson has a very large breadth of knowledge concerning mental health. His expertise is diverse, and I am confident in his opinions regarding my mental health struggles. He is very honest and to the point with his responses. Knowledgeable about medications, the spectrum of mental illness, and I look forward to working with him. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MurderMinute, that's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P, and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are now recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Murder Minute listeners get 10% off their first month when they visit BetterHelp.com slash MurderMinute. That's betterhelp.com slash murderminute.
Do you get bored with your workouts? If you're looking for a fun workout that keeps you engaged, learning, excited, and motivated, you need to check out Fight Camp. Fight Camp brings the boxing gym to your living room. Boxing is one of the best ways to get in shape and learn a new skill. Fight Camp provides all the gear and top trainers, everything you'll need to get in fighting shape. The best freestanding punching bag on the market, great boxing gloves, quick hand wraps, and their unique punch tracking sensors that show you real-time progress and stats on any iOS device. Plus, Fight Camp even offers kids' gloves so that the whole family can get in on the action. Learn from six highly qualified trainers, ranging from a pro MMA fighter and mother of two to a kickboxing world champion. And if you're new to boxing like me, their 12-week starter program teaches you the fundamentals of boxing while you get a great workout every time. Fight Camp has hundreds of different workouts for all fitness levels and skills. And with new ones every week, you'll get hooked. Try Fight Camp workouts for free. Just download the Fight Camp app and select the workout of your choice. It's a great way to test your trainer. With Affirm Financing, you can get your gym right away. Make easy monthly payments and the gym is yours to keep at the end of your term. At less than $100 a month after approval, it's cheaper than almost every boxing gym. Fight Camp offers flexible financing for as low as 0% APR. And right now, as a limited time offer, you can try Fight Camp for 30 days with their money-back guarantee. Just go to joinfightcamp.com slash murder. That's right, try Fight Camp for 30 days. And if you don't love it, they'll refund your money. Train like a fighter and turn your sweat into results. To try Fight Camp for 30 days, just go to joinfightcamp.com slash murder. That's joinfightcamp.com slash murder. Welcome back to Murder Minute. Brynhild Paulsdottir's Dorset was born on a farm in Norway on November 11, 1859. Brynhild was the youngest of eight children and grew up to be a strong and imposing woman. She stood five foot nine inches tall and weighed over 200 pounds. At age 21, following the example of her sister who had immigrated to America earlier, Brynhild decided to move to the United States. When she arrived in Chicago in 1881, she decided to assume a more American-style name. She called herself Belle and found work as a domestic servant. In 1884, Belle married Mods Sorensen, and two years later, they opened a candy shop. But business was slow. Their shop was failing. But the Sorensons got lucky. Instead of going bankrupt, their candy store mysteriously burned to the ground, and the Sorensons received a substantial insurance payout. Substantial enough to buy a new home. Belle and Mods went on to have four children, Caroline, 
Axel, Myrtle, and Lucy. They would also go on to adopt a fifth child, 10-year-old Jenny Olsen. Tragically, Caroline and Axel died as infants from acute colitis, the symptoms of which are nausea, fever, diarrhea, and lower abdominal pain. The same symptoms as poisoning. In the 1880s, infant death was sadly very common. Over one-third of children died before the age of five. The Sorensons again profited from their misfortunes, collecting life insurance policies for both children without suspicion. Then, in 1900, death returned to the Sorensen house. On July 30th, after 16 years of marriage, Belle's husband, Maud Sorensen, dropped dead. But once again, Belle's cloud had a silver lining. Maud Sorensen had purchased two life insurance policies. That month, one was about to expire. The other would take its place. July 30th was the one day that the policies overlapped, giving Bell the maximum payout. According to Bell, Mods came home after work that day with a headache, so she gave him quinine powder for the pain. When she came back to check on him, he was dead. The Sorensen's family doctor had been treating Mods for an enlarged heart, so he concluded that the cause of death was heart failure. The next day, Bell collected somewhere between $5,000 and $8,500 from the two policies, equivalent to over $200,000 today. But not everyone was convinced that the widowed Bell had just been a victim of misfortune. The family of Maud Sorensen demanded an inquiry. They believed that Maud's had been poisoned and wanted the body exhumed. Belle decided that it was time to leave Illinois. She took the money and her three remaining children to LaPorte, Indiana and bought a farm. It was there in April of 1902 that she married her second husband, another Norwegian immigrant named Peter Gunnis. Peter was a butcher and a recent widower himself, with two daughters of his own who needed a mother to care for them. Within a week of their marriage, Peter's infant daughter mysteriously died while alone in the house with Belle. By December, Belle was a widow once more. Peter met his end when a sausage-grinding machine allegedly fell off of a high shelf and crushed his skull. The coroner found Belle's story suspicious. Upon viewing Peter's body, he allegedly muttered, This is a case of murder. There was also gossip among the local schoolchildren. Belle's adopted daughter, Jenny Olson, told a classmate, 
My mama killed my papa. She hit him with a meat cleaver and he died. Don't tell a soul. Jenny later denied this. Belle made her case and convinced the authorities of her innocence. The investigation was dropped and no charges were filed. Peter's older brother, Gust, removed his brother's remaining daughter from Belle's care. She would be the only child to survive Belle. After Peter's death, Belle collected another $3,000 from his life insurance, worth approximately $90,000 today. Shortly thereafter, Jenny went missing. When neighbors inquired as to where she had gone, Belle told them that she sent Jenny to Los Angeles to attend a finishing school. The following year, Belle gave birth to a son, Philip. Evidently, she had been pregnant when Peter met his untimely end. In 1907, Belle employed a farmhand. Ray Lamphere, to help around the property. But rumors soon spread that Ray was more to Bell than just an employee. When he was drunk, Ray often boasted that he was sleeping with her. But Ray Lamphere was not what Bell was looking for in a husband. To attract new suitors, Bell decided to take out personal ads in Norwegian newspapers across the Midwest. One of them read, quote, Comely widow who owns a large farm in one of the finest districts in Laporte County, Indiana, desires to make the acquaintance of a gentleman equally well provided, with view of joining fortunes. No replies by letter considered, unless sender is willing to follow answer with personal visit. Triflers need not apply. Letters poured in, and before long Belle was spotted in town, wearing her finest, going for carriage rides with men on Sunday afternoons. One of them, John Moe, came from Minnesota with $1,000 to pay off Belle's mortgage. Bell told neighbors that he was her cousin. He was never seen again. George Anderson came from Missouri, but unlike John Moe, Anderson said that he would only pay Bell's mortgage off if they decided to wed. Later that night, while asleep in Bell's guest room, Anderson awoke to see Bell standing over him holding a candle. Anderson would later state that the expression on Bell's face was so sinister and murderous that it terrified him. He yelled, startled and terrified, and Bell ran from the room. Anderson was so uncomfortable, unnerved, that he immediately jumped out of bed and got dressed he left the farm without saying goodbye to Belle and boarded the first train back to Missouri. Anderson left in such a hurry 
that he left his belongings behind. He never returned for them, and he never spoke to Belle again. George Anderson would be the only suitor to survive Belle's farm. Belle began ordering large wooden trunks to be delivered. One delivery man would later say that she was able to carry them on her shoulder as if they were, quote, boxes of marshmallows. Belle kept the shutters of her house closed, and neighbors began to notice her digging in her hog pen at night. And the suitors kept coming. Ollie B. Budsberg, an elderly widower from Wisconsin, was next. Budsberg's family had no idea that he had gone to visit Bell. On April 6, 1907, Budsberg was seen at the Laporte Savings Bank. He mortgaged his Wisconsin land, signed over a deed, and obtained several thousand dollars in cash. It was the last time he was ever seen alive. When Budsberg's sons learned where their father went, they wrote to Bell, and she promptly responded that she hadn't seen him. The men kept coming. George Berry from Illinois, who arrived with $1,500 cash and disappeared. Christian Hilkvin, who sold his farm for $2,000 and went to Bell's farm never to be heard from again. Emil Tell also brought $2,000 to woo Bell. And on and on. Then, in December of 1907, Andrew Helgeline, a farmer from South Dakota, began corresponding with Bell. For over a year, Andrew and Bell exchanged letters. But Andrew had not visited the farm. Finally, a letter arrived that sealed the deal and Andrew's fate. On January 13, 1908, Bell wrote, To the dearest friend in the world, no woman in the world is happier than I am. I know that you are now to come to me and be my own. I can tell from your letters that you are the man I want. It does not take one long to tell when to like a person. And you I like better than anyone in the world I know. Think how we will enjoy each other's company. You, the sweetest man in the whole world, we will be all alone with each other. Can you conceive of anything nicer? I think of you constantly. When I hear your name mentioned, and this is when one of the dear children speaks of you, or I hear myself humming it with the words of an old love song, it is beautiful music to my ears. My heart beats in wild rapture for you, my Andrew. I love you. Come prepared to stay forever. In January of 1908, Andrew did just that. He went to Laporte to be with Belle and brought with him his savings, a check for $3,000. A few days after he arrived, Andrew and Bell were seen at the savings bank, where he deposited the check. On February 3, 
1908, when Belle introduced Andrew, her new husband-to-be, to her farmhand and lover, Ray Lampier. Ray made a scene. Belle fired him and kicked him out. A few days later, Andrew had disappeared, and Belle was back at the bank, making another large deposit. She then went to the courthouse and told the authorities that her former employee, Ray Lamphere, was dangerously obsessed with her and that she feared for her life. A sanity hearing was held, but Ray was pronounced sane and released. A few days later, Belle told the sheriff that Ray had come to her farm and threatened her and her family, and Ray Lamphere was arrested for trespassing. But Ray was the least of Belle's worries. Andrew's brother, Asel, was looking for him and had written to Belle asking why he hadn't returned home. Belle wrote back that Andrew wasn't at her farm and that he had probably gone back to Norway. But Andrew's brother wasn't convinced. Bill responded that he was more than welcome to come to Laporte to look for his brother, and that she would help him conduct the search herself. Bell needed to act fast. She went to a lawyer and told him that she feared for her life and for her children's lives. Ray Lamphere, she said, had threatened to kill her and her children and burn the house down. She made a new will, leaving her estate to her three children and, in the event of their deaths, to the Norwegian Orphan's Home in Chicago. She failed to mention her daughter Jenny, who was apparently alive and well in California. Twelve hours later, on April 28, 1908, Bell's farmhouse burned to the ground. Among the ashes, the local authorities found the charred remains of three children and one woman. The remains were presumed to be that of Belle and her three children. There was only one problem. The woman's body had been decapitated. Ray Lamphere was arrested and charged with murder and arson. But there was another problem. The woman's body appeared smaller than Belle. Some who viewed the body questioned whether it was Belle Gunness at all. But when false teeth said to belong to Belle were found in the debris, the coroner concluded that the female body was indeed Belle Gunness. But the investigation would turn upside down, just as Andrew's brother, Asel, arrived looking for him. Asel Helgeline told the sheriff that he believed that Bell Gunness had killed his brother. Asel watched as men digging on the property, looking for Bell's missing head, turned up eight 
men's watches, and several bones. As Aesol looked around the property himself, he noticed several soft depressions around a hog pen. After briefly digging in one of the depressions, a gunny sack was found that contained two hands, two feet, and one head. That's Andy, Aesol cried out. It was Andrew Helgeline. As they continued digging on the farm, they unearthed multiple burlap sacks containing, quote, torsos and hands, arms hacked from the shoulders down, masses of human bone wrapped in loose flesh that dripped like jelly. The bodies had all been butchered in the same manner and were in various stages of decay. Decapitated, arms removed at the shoulders, and the legs severed at the knees. Blunt trauma and gashes marked the skulls that were recovered. Quicklime had been scattered over the faces and stuffed in the ears. In the stomach contents that could be recovered and tested, they found traces of arsenic and strychnine. The search found the parts of five bodies on the first day, including Jenny Olson. The second day, they found six more. Also among the remains were the bodies of two other unidentified children but they never found Bell's head. It's estimated that Bell Gunnis killed between 13 and 42 people. News of the horrors found at her farm earned her nicknames like the Lady Bluebeard, Hell's Bell, and the Laporte Ghoul. Ray Lamphere was ultimately convicted of arson. In jail, Ray reportedly claimed that Bell was a serial killer and that she was still alive. According to Ray, Bell murdered her suitors by pouring poison into their dinner coffee. Once incapacitated, she'd split his skull. Then she would take them to the basement and butcher the body. Lamphere said that some of the parts were fed to her hogs. Others were buried. When Belle knew that she would be caught, she packed up the money stolen from her suitors, smothered her children, and fled, leaving behind a woman's corpse to fake her own death. According to Ray, the decapitated female body belonged to a woman from Chicago who had been promised a job as Bell's housekeeper. Bell's farm went on to become a tourist attraction. Thousands of early true crime fans traveled across the country to view the mass graves and buy souvenirs. For decades, people claimed to have spotted Bell all over the country. 
but no arrests were ever made. Belle Gunness was officially pronounced dead. But whether she died in the fire or faked her death remains a mystery. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute.